This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. Getting hearing aids is no picnic. It's expensive, confusing, time-consuming, right? Actually, no. With the Jabra Enhance Select and Premium Package, you can get state-of-the-art hearing aids and professional care without the hassle. Jabra Enhance offers advanced rechargeable hearing aids delivered to your door for thousands less than you'd expect. No offices, no waiting rooms. Just take the online hearing test to personalize your hearing aids. Enjoy speech clarity, noise reduction, and hearing technology that adapts to your unique sound environments. And the audiology team can provide adjustments to your hearing aids remotely on request for three years. And the best part? You'll likely pay thousands less than if you went to a traditional audiologist. And now for a limited time, save $200 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhanced.com and enter promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhanced.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is January the 24th in 2023, and my guest is Ece Emole, the founder of Afropolitan. Afropolitan is creating a digital nation to enable all Africans to build abundant lives. Today, we'll talk about all things Afropolitan. Ece, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. How are you doing? Great, man. Really excited to have you here. I told my audience about Afropolitan several times. Some of them mm-hmm. have been in touch with you. So really excited to have you on the podcast. I love your tagline, by the way. Yeah, I love your tagline, by the way. A digital nation to enable all Africans to build abundant lives. Very succinct. Yeah. Yeah. Before we, you introduce us to Afropolitan, can you tell mm-hmm. listeners a bit about yourself and your background? What's helpful to understand who you are and why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, no, definitely, babe. Thank you so much for having me. I was born in Nigeria. I moved to the States when I was 15 with my family. I moved to California, specifically Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area region. I transitioned and finished up high school over there. Also did my bachelor's, my master's, and also finished up law school, right? And I think my introduction from perspective was you can imagine being born in Nigeria and I'm moving to the States at 15. I've only ever known like Africa or Nigeria from that standpoint. But when I moved to the U.S., it was a culture shock because the school I got placed in, I was the only black kid in my And um, that gave me a very unique perspective because it, a lot of the kids at the time didn't make any separation between whether I was a Nigerian or whether I was an African-American. They just assumed that everything black, I would know, right? And so in order to assimilate, they would always ask me all these questions about everything I had to do with anything African or black. But I'd only just come from Nigeria. I didn't know any other thing, any other place except my Nigerian perspective. And so it forced me to start researching and going to do research and learn about different cultures. But I think that also helped lay the foundation of how Afropolitan came to be. Because in learning about all these different cultures, I came to appreciate the diversity, the beauty, and really have a deep appreciation for different cultures. And um, 
that that's been my background. My family on my dad's side, they're lawyers. So I grew up with a large education focused on my mom's side. They were entrepreneurs. And so that also helped spark entrepreneurship in me. But yeah, that that's the background so far. Right. So now what is Afropolitan and how did you get to start Afropolitan? Yeah, I think the best way to understand Afropolitan's journey is to think about it in three phases, right? Phase one of Afropolitan is an organization I started while in law school in 2016, catering to the African diaspora through events. So think, think Afrobeats parties, concerts, and festivals. A significant highlight of what we achieved in phase one is something called the Year of Return that happened in 2019 in Ghana, where we helped facilitate about a million plus people from the diaspora coming to Ghana, it generated about $2 billion worth of economic activity, right? And that was phase one. Phase two then starts in 2020, where we thought we were going to reload it. The demand was pretty high. And then the pandemic hit, right? COVID decimated the entire in real life events industry. And so we pivoted into media, but we did that pivot through a social audio app called Clubhouse. So in Clubhouse, between I and my co-founder, Chica, we built communities on there of about 200,000 people collectively, right? And so we were able to bring together the diaspora on, in an online perspective. We're able to do things like fund the NSARS police brutality protest in Lagos. We're able to send money for the refugee crisis during the Ethiopian civil war. So we showed a capacity for collective action just by organizing online, right? Phase three then starts in 2021 when Balaji Sunivasan, he's the former CTO of Coinbase, he drops this article called How to Start a New Country. And in the article, he advocates for this idea of a network state, which is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that's able to crowdfund territory around the world and eventually gain diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. I remember the first time reading the article and I was blown away, but there was a particular quote in the article where he says, because the brand new is unthinkable, we fight over the old. And I remember just thinking to myself, like this quote encapsulates how I felt about Africa's trajectory in the world, right? It's like, we are too busy fighting over the old and we're not aspiring for the brand new or the unthinkable. And so for the rest of the year, I read Peeled My Way into Web3, Web doing research, learning more about decentralization, crypto, blockchain. And then December 23rd, I'm in Nairobi, Kenya. I wake up at 5 a.m. I'm pacing the room for about an hour and my partner's, hey, what's going on? I'm like, look, I know how I would look at someone who's about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but I think we need to start a new country. And she's like, wait, what is <laughs> it? And I'm like, yeah. And so for the next two months, we took our time to flesh it out. I reached out to Balaji as well. He agreed to also invest in this. And we developed four phases of our master plan, right? Phase one for us, literally seeding the network, right? I'm building all this powerful private network attracting the best across Africa and the diaspora in different fields, right? Art, finance, tech, media, sports, et cetera, to, just to build a powerful private network. And then seeding that network with our NFT citizen passes, which we released this past December, right? And we are starting off with 500 of those passes, right? And that was first, that's phase one. Phase two is what we're calling government as a service, which is as we scale up, how do we aggregate services for our people using this Afropolitan super app where they'll be able to do things like e-residency, swim into Estonia, one-click checkout for company registration, remittances backed by crypto, and even self-serving ID, right, for KYC purposes. 
and there are a bunch of other value-added services like risk capital that can be, that will be brought on as well as you scale. Phase three is what we're calling the minimum viable state, right? Which is how do we ladder up the credibility needed to be viewed as a country one day? So you have to build up your legitimacy as you go. So today, Afghan citizens can get visa and arrival services for Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and Tanzania, right? And so for us, it's like, where do we step in to ensure quality assurance in places where governments on the continent have failed or are failing? And where can we say, okay, when we step in here, you get to express a certain level of service as an Afropolitan citizen. And then on top of that, we are also recognized by the New York Stock Exchange last September as the first ever internet country for the African diaspora. So the idea for that is look at this 200-year-old institution recognizing us. Today, it's the New York Stock Exchange. Tomorrow, it might be the United Nations. So you're ladding up your legitimacy as you go. Phase four is the land piece, right? So remember... A network state is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that's able to craft on territory around the world and eventually gain diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. The land piece allows us to now materialize physically online. And what would that look like? We want to innovate on that concept. So today, when you think about borders, you think about four-corner borders, right? Let's say Switzerland's border is like a four-corner border. You know where it starts, you know where it ends, right? We want, on our end, we want a border that's discontinuous, right? So it's a border that stretches across the entire world. What would that look like? We want to combine two concepts together. One, an embassy, and the other one is a Chinatown. So take, for example, a Switzerland embassy in Kenya, for example, is a sovereign territory in Kenya, right? In Chinatowns, they have their own banking, their own malls, their own post office. If we can combine those two concepts together, what we want is a sovereign Afrotown. Right. So then let's zoom out to recap. You're an Afropolitan citizen. You navigate the world with your Afropolitan passport. You're able to make payments for goods and services using your Afropolitan super app. And you're also able to get physical entry into Afrotowns located across the world. That is, in a nutshell, the Afropolitan vision. Amazing. And I love that it's so concrete also where it ends with these Afrotowns that could, you could compare to Chinatowns, right? Just mm -hmm. that you have a deliberate strategy of first building that community and then getting the leverage to get governments yeah. or cities to say, okay, you can use this territory and, and build things there. Is there, what are typically like, I think you did it really well, but what are the things that people are typically skeptical about that or the ones that are hard, for whom it's hard to wrap their mind around what's a digital nation, mm -hmm. what you typically encounter. Yeah, so I think like people are sometimes skeptical. Uh, first of all, the audacity of the idea in the first place is it's very audacious, right? It's like, this is where you're going. And I think like from where I'm from, we're not used to having these very audacious ideas. I would say to you, what we're more used to seeing is copy and pasting from the West. So when a lot of founders from where I'm from come from, it's more of, we're building the Stripe for Africa, or we're building the Uber for Africa, or we're building the Airbnb for Africa. And the investors are able to compare and contrast, right? Okay, if Airbnb is this, what would it look like here? And it's just geographical arbitrage, right? Which is great. There's no problem because we still need those services. But when you're coming out and you're like, hey, we're doing this thing that's not really even been seen in the West before, or there's just nowhere else that's really been done, and we're innovating on it, and we want to be the first to also do it, it's why are we the ones leading the charge versus the West? Like, why doesn't the West do? And I say to people, like, the reason we're the ones who are leading it is because it's a particular pain point for us. If I was a Switzerland citizen, 
And if we're all citizens and I came up and I said, hey, I want to start a new country. Everyone would look at me like, why? What's wrong with this one? What is so wrong with this one that we would need to start a new one? But if you say to your average African, like, hey, would you buy into a new country if your services could be better and everything you suffer now is no longer available there? Most people will choose it in a heartbeat. So it's a particular and acute pain point for some of the places that we come from and the nation state experiment in general has failed for us. But in terms of skepticism, again, the first thing we have to also challenge is the mindset, right? There has been a level on learning to relearn, right? So the mindset of being ambitious, being audacious, willing to strive to build, right? We need to encourage a building culture. That's one. Number two, it's the technology as well. A lot of people are skeptical about crypto now because of things like the FTX bust and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I keep saying to people like bad people use technology all the time. It doesn't, doesn't make you stop using technology. Like when your banks, look at what happens with Wells Fargo. I didn't go pull my money out of a bank because Wells Fargo was moving mad, right? The idea here is what does the technology enable you to do that allows us to, to enable better governance as a community, right? So for example, as of today, you can go on Ether Scan and you can see how many anthropologists and passes have been minted, how much that's generated in the community treasury, right? Any disbursements, you can actually track that ledger by ledger. And from an accountability and transparency perspective, that is setting up a model for our network state, right? Versus today, where we don't have any insight into a lot of the nation state budgets. We don't have any insights, even when the funds are disbursed, what actually gets done. No roads get built, no bridges get built, nothing actually gets done. And there's a lot of corruption that gets hidden because no one's really embracing the technology that allows for greater transparency. And so... As we educate community members on this, we're saying to them, like, look, over here, there's a standard that we have to set up a baseline of competence, right? Where you could come here and say, like, hey, these people are builders. They build, they want best for the community, and they're attracting some of the most quality folks from around the world. And I think that's the, that's, those are some of the challenges that we have faced as we go. Obviously, technology, infrastructure as well, because for most Crypto is still so nascent, right? I think it's just 3% of adoption in the world. So you're still, we're still so early, but I think we would prefer to be this early than to be, the next night would be on the table. And I think for us, it's making sure that we leverage these tools as we scale up. Great. And I love that technology is so much at the heart of your vision because it increasingly seems yeah. to me that technology is an equalizing force, right? It's for the internet, we get access to information from all over the world and access to the tools like programming language. You can teach yeah. someone to code decently in six to 12 months in Africa, right? So you don't mm -hmm. need all these, build all these expensive institutions like universities that you need to go through for four or six years. And so in many ways, I think yeah. you have a chance now in Africa or in Latin America or in countries that were thought of as, oh, yeah. catching up with the West to do it better. Because I think yeah. we messed a lot of things yeah. up in education and housing and yeah. healthcare and energy. I had another episode where we talked about drone technology and drone logistics. First country to try it was Rwanda. And they were yeah. saving mothers' lives by using novel yeah. technology that in the United States, the regulators said no to. Yeah, yeah. I think technology and the internet is the only way we leapfrog. That's just my core, core belief. It's the only way we can equalize and get to some sort of equity because If you depend on aid, right, it's not working. If you depend on loans from the IMF or World Bank, it's not working. You need a place to be able to democratize access to opportunities, information, and capital for folks. And the internet allows you to do that, right? It's through the internet we've been able to scale things like our culture, movies, music, right? But then imagine the role DeFi could play, 
right? Imagine not having to worry about getting loans from the IMF or the World Bank. That might be crippling to your economy, but this time you can get loans from a diaspora organized fund. And so when you start to think through this at scale, you start to figure out like if you can organize folks, which the internet allows you to be able to do today, right? Then that collective strength and that collective leverage can then be used to unlock a bunch of value for folks despite despite the borders, right? Because it's a borderless mechanism as well. Yeah. Another thing that I found very interesting, what you were talking about was culture, right? So how do you make people believe that they can be the greatest in the world, right? So yeah. bringing that mindset, how do you do that? For example, the art that we released for the NFTs, right? I remember when we were initially working this out, I was saying to myself, like, the talent is always distributed across the world, right? But the opportunity is not. I remember initially, like, when I stumbled into the NFT space, I'm like, I'm looking at a lot of the art and I'm like, I feel like this could be better. This could be so much better. But the people that I know who are quality artists don't have access or don't have distribution. So what would it look like if Afropolitan can serve as that platform where you're bringing the world-class talent just for not the best out of Africa? I'm just saying world-class. Like, you can put this up against anything. And so we were able to find an artist that was in Nigeria. His name is Ogosa, right? Ogosa is a digital artist, right? And his art spoke for itself. And when people saw it, they're like, oh my God, this looks amazing. This is great. But this is objectively. Nobody was saying this looks amazing for Africa or this looks amazing for Nigeria. This was world class. I can put this up against anything and we can have a conversation. And, I, and so I think for me, it's what you said to show that you can actually attract the best in class in each different field, right? You now start to showcase that to the world at scale, right? So best in class in tech. Best in class in finance, best in class in, in art, best in class in music. You're just showcasing folks and saying, this is the talent. It's always just the opportunity or distribution, right? And then now your community can help of that talent scale as well. So that those are one way, those are the ways that we're thinking. Great. So just by setting a very high benchmark, right? Yeah, always. Like I, I keep telling folks, it's really about, if Nicholas, if you travel across Africa, you just realize like there are no standards. We can go into the history of what has happened, but the fact of the matter is that today we don't have a baseline of competence. And I think for us, it's like Afropolitan wants to signify that. It's look, you come in here, you know what to expect. It's consistent. There's a baseline of competence. The standard does not fall below a level. It can always increase, but it should not fall below a certain level. And I think that's what we're really looking to push with Afropolitan. Yeah, I like that. It reminds me of something that Thomas Sowell said about the tyranny of low expectations and overcoming that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Out of curiosity, the founder of Talent City, Yi Abuyeji, is also founding Network of Charter Cities. And yeah. did you, are you two, did you two influence each other in your thought process? Yeah. So he is also an investor in Afropolitan. In fact, he's been a mentor to me as well. So I would say that we probably approached it from two different angles. He was based in Lagos, Nigeria. I was based in San Francisco. So we connected on the basis of community as well. He came to Afropolitan events in the Bay Area. So he, the role town city could even play for us as the land piece as well. So as they built that, you can think about partnerships, like we were talking about Prospera earlier, right? We, there are places where when you do have these communities already built from a real estate perspective, Afropolitan can plug into them as part of our real estate offerings as we scale. Fantastic. I have him on my podcast too next week. 
really excited. Awesome, awesome. As well. Awesome. Besides Balaji Srinivasan and the network states, were there any other sort of key influences on that made that shape your life or your idea of anthropology? Yeah. I think the framework for it really started with Naval and um because you have to get the framework models right in your head. And I think also being multidisciplinary as well. So I'm someone who had a background in entertainment, had someone had a background in tourism, also had a background in politics, I had a background in law, and then I I, I transitioned to fintech. So by the time I, I came to to cook up what Afropolitan could be, my mental models had been shaped by these different fields and being cross-disciplinary in, in a way, right? When I read Naval's Almanac, the Almanac of Naval Ravikar, it really broke down a lot of concepts to me in terms of frameworks of what to use, the sort of people you want to attract, especially when our motto is abundant lives, right? Like why abundant lives in the first place? Because growing up in or coming up in the Francisco Bay area, I had all these friends and who worked in tech, right? But for most of us, we were first generation. Like this is the first time a lot of us were earning six figures and we're young, like we're, we were in our twenties, right? But the mindset then allowed us to transcend because now you're not moving from scarcity, you're moving from abundance, right? And that surplus now makes you want to think about how to improve your world and the worlds of your friends. And I then said to myself, you have a community of all these people from different places in Africa. No one's fighting. No one's trying to kill each other, but because it's that there's abundance, right? And then you're like, when there's scarcity and it's scarcity of resources or people feel like this, that like if you lose, I win, right? Or I win, you have to lose. You're going to have conflict. And so when we now have to think through Afropolitan, you're now saying to yourself, what values do you want to encourage? Values like win and help win, right? Values like playing long-term games with long-term people, right? Making sure you're thinking about the foundation of what you're doing and make sure you're reinforcing those values as well, which is why the biggest part about joining Afropolitan community is we also have to have shared values and purpose, right? And the internet allows us to, enables us to organize around those shared values and purpose, right? So Versus a Facebook, where it's like an online passive community. This is, if you're coming into this community, you should be known that you're adopting or you've already adopted these shared values and purpose. And this is what we're optimizing for as we go forward. Great. You said you have a background in law. I'm curious, mm -hmm. how do you think about setting not only the culture, but also do you think of, or are you implementing any kind of laws into Afropolitan? Yeah. So we have a draft of our constitution already set. I think what the phase that we're in right now is like these, this year for us, the year of the network. So it's growing the network, but you can imagine a world where the constitution gets ratified by the first 500 citizens of Afropolitan, right? And then obviously when it gets ratified, it has to get reviewed, amendments have to get made, but that process is already like already in the works. I think the way I really truly believe that the blockchain strategy allows us to innovate on this is. I think we are tired of waiting eight years or 10 years for like politicians to just transition out, right? Like, it's like, how do we make this process a little bit more in tune with the times, right? And like, even America has dropped the ball, right? Like I remember before I moved to the US, I looked to it as the model for everything. And as I went through the system, I'm like, wow, like this, this can no longer be the model for the 22nd century. Like we need something better for us at scale. And I think the technology combined with the law precepts are things that we can use. Because I think one of the reasons why I transitioned from law was like, every time I would ask, why are we doing this way? Why not this way? They would say it's precedent. It's precedent. I'm like, what? Precedent that said like two, 300 years ago or 50 years ago, 50 years ago. 
I'm like, how, why are we living like these things cannot be changed? And I think for us, it's, you want Afropolitans to always be innovative. You want Afropolitans to always catch up to what serves our people today, not necessarily having to be bound by laws that were made when most of us were never in our life. Not to say that no laws aren't good, but it's just to say you want a nation to act and respond like a company, right? Like when Amazon messes up before they mess up, they already send me a refund. Like they act and they're active, but countries are too laggard. And I think our idea with a network state is how is this more responsive and a service provider at scale? Because that's really what countries are, right? They're service providers and they should also respond in that way as well. Yeah, I was meaning to ask about that. So how do you think about at one point in the manifesto you're saying the nation state experiment has failed black people worldwide. It has yielded nothing but poverty, yeah. genocide, police brutality, ethnic strife, inflation, weak government, and the failure of our ecosystems. So I was curious if you can elaborate a bit on that quote and how to think beyond the nation state or improve the nation state. The way I think about this, because, you know, I tell you, I studied law and also politics. When I think through one of the inspirations was I read the Federalist Papers from Alexander Hamilton, the first chapter, where he says, is it possible for societies of men to form a new constitution through reflection and choice, or are we forever destined to depend on our governance through accident and force? And I remember just thinking to myself, that's it right there. We never actually reflected and chose. It was through accident and force. So for context, accident could be the colonies and just the fact that independence was thrust on colonies. There was not really any good reflection. And then on top of its force, whether it was slavery and bringing people through the transatlantic slave trade, right? So what we're saying is, let us go back and let us reflect and then let us choose, right? And then this time you're reflecting with people you have shared values with, and then you're choosing with them to move towards this particular vision of what you're trying to build. And so when I think about why the nation state experiment has failed, it's because the foundations were never really set. Look at cross history, like before Sipplin became what it was, it took years, hundreds of years or whatever, but they eventually got to a point where they collectively reflected and chose. The Magna Carta in England reflected and chose. The U.S. reflected and chose. Where are those examples across Africa? They don't exist. Like the Nigeria guys' independence in 1960, the British were basically like, hey guys, we're leaving. You'll hold on to this. We'll be back. And then the Francophone countries, same thing, where it's like their reserve currencies are still held in the French, in the French CBN, or central banks. And so you're saying to yourself, like, look, the mistakes have been made. Sure. How can we go back? Or how can it, we actually build with a new foundation? One of the analogies I like to give is picture a house with a weak foundation, right? And we're the owners of this house. And we go into the house and instead of choosing to fix the foundation, we say, hey, we're going to fix the AC or the fans or paint the walls. And we believe that if we do all those things, the foundation will be strong. That's not how it works because the house eventually still collapses. What we're saying is in the African context, we're trying to to leap without fixing the foundation. The foundation is one of governance, but the AC could be our fintech sector. The lights could be our agri-tech sector. The walls could be our healthcare sector. Those sectors cannot thrive unless we have great governance. And I think that's the message that we're pushing. So let us start with the right foundation, right? And then those sectors thrive fully because what ends up happening is these sectors run up against the weak foundation and a lot of them start to fail as businesses, right? And we've seen so many examples of that across Africa. And even from a, a venture capital perspective, 
venture capitalists have poured $5 billion into the African ecosystem, right? They're expecting multiples on those returns. Those returns are not going to be possible if governance does not catch up. Because right now, a lot of startups are badly against the wind. Nicholas, if you ever have a chance to come to Nigeria, you should really come see what startups have to do in order to just be able to run a business. It's ridiculous, right? And I think we're trying to change that with Afropolitan. Yeah, great. That's the topic of many conversations on my podcast, like episode seven, mm -hmm. really revelatory to me, to the thinking about the legal foundations, the governance foundations mm -hmm. of a society as the software of society. So the analogy that I yeah. use often is, imagine you have an MS-DOS operating system and you try to build mm -hmm. high-performance apps on top. That's not really possible. Yeah. So you want to upgrade to like an iOS operating system or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you talk more about the kinds of services or problems that you aim to solve with the super app? Mm -hmm. Like I was reading, for example, about a digital passport. So that sounded interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I think through, like I, I look at, you and I were talking earlier, I asked myself, where in the world are Africans truly free? And I said to myself, it's on the internet. Right. Like it's really on the internet where we've been able to serve as an equalizer. So you now start to talk about what services enable us to cut through a lot of the bullshit. Right. So let's give examples here. Whether it's how we do cross border payments. Today, if you want to send money from Nigeria to Ghana, it first has to hit New York, get charged fees, and then gets to Ghana. Why? These rules don't work for us. If you want to send money even back home with Western Union, you get charged at rate of speed. Again, why? These rules don't work for us. And we don't want to keep, and I think the distinction for Afropolitan is, it's not to say that there's no racism in the world. It does exist, but we don't let it stop us from getting stuff done. It's like we accept that there are a lot of systematic things that disenfranchise us as a people. Sure. But we're going to move in spite of it. We're not going to stay and just be like, hey, okay, these are things that are going to make us not live lives. I think the mindset is more of like, how do we then utilize technology that gives us some more control over our lives? We are saying things like, okay, imagine a world in which you go bankless. You, you're either utilizing stable coins or whatever currency have pots and issues out. You're getting, you're making those payments for goods and services, utilizing that. You're not depending on the Federal Reserve in the U.S. or the Federal Reserve and these local governments to do that, especially if it's built for scale, right? Now you're a citizen, you're able to get paid in these deposits directly. You're able to qualify for loans because now we have access to your data. Now Nigeria banks barely issue out any loads, right? Very, very low. So you're not even having a banking system that's thriving at scale. But then even in the U.S. or in the West, sometimes Africans can't qualify for these loans because, again, due to systematic racism in some of these institutions. So what we're saying is the technology allows us to have a situation where your KYC just utilizing your wallet, right, or your NFT. If we already know that you meet these parameters, we can then build a profile on you that allows us to qualify for certain services at scale. So it's almost like a, like the NBM tech stack, right? Where they focus first on the KYC, then the payments. And then now the data generated from both allowed them to offer services at scale. So you can imagine a world where you have a Fulton citizen, you qualify for insurance, you qualify for benefits that accrue to you from being part of this ecosystem, right? And that is tracked in a way that utilizes technology to make it your life much more convenient for you. And you then bypass a world where because we were late to the party as Africans, if the rules have already been set. So what we're saying is instead of us forcing ourselves to play within those roles, we'll just create our ecosystem that works for us and then do the work of convincing folks to adopt this other 
framework. And I think I would rather spend more time doing that than trying to convince people or anyone or any system that we are something or our humanity is worth something. Today, for example, in Nigeria, there are a lot of websites that are not available in Nigeria because they we're blocked some of them, right? And they'll tell you things like it's because of the fraud levels from Nigeria. But I'm like, okay, cool. So this is the data-backed decision. So pull up the data sets on the top 10 countries on your platform where fraud happens. Nigeria is in top 10. So are you banning Germany? Are you banning China? Are you banning India? No. Why? The answer is they have leverage. They have power. They have resources and you guys don't. So then you say to ourselves, like, we just need to go build our own leverage up, aggregate that leverage at scale, utilizing the internet, and then start to offer services to our people on the back. Yeah. And I think the idea of a passport, I think, illuminates yeah. a big part of the problem where it became very clear to me beginning yeah. of last year when the Ukraine crisis happened. So I did a spontaneous initiative to help mm -hmm. Ukrainians that were escaping find accommodation in Europe. Yeah. But what was yeah. a problem was students from Africa, from Nigeria. Exactly. So there were many African exactly. students in Ukraine and we couldn't get them out of the country. There was no one no government that was Same. allowing them in or lobbying on their yeah. behalf and getting them out. So yeah. Yeah. You know, what if you had like a digital embassy or an embassy or someone or a government that truly exactly. cares about for that matter, who is yeah. getting you out of there. And I'm so glad you touched on that point. One of the other like things we suffer from is this passport issue, right? The fact that by virtue of where you're born, you don't have access to certain opportunities. And that is such an arbitrary decision makes no sense to me. And I think for me, it's when you start to explore, like um, Luxembourg, for example, has a population of 615,000 people. But Luxembourg passport gets you access to 188 countries out of 193 countries in the world, right? And then you see a country like Nigeria with 200 million people, and we can barely go down the street, right? And it's, no, like these are no longer rules we want to live by. And I think for me, I'm very passionate about this because for so long, there's been information arbitrage, which is... They don't know, and we know, so we can take advantage of that. Now the internet allows this information to be at all our doorsteps, and the world is going to be forced to reckon with a lot of the rules. And I think one of my favorite shows is White Lotus. And at the end of the show, there was a thing where she was like, maybe it's just everyone's turn to eat now. And I'm like, that is the mindset. Because the thing is, folks are waking up and saying to themselves, these rules, we're not going to just sit by and abide by them anymore. They make no sense, right? You're telling me I can't open up an account because of this, or I can't move money because of this, or I can't. No, I should be able to send money to you, Nicholas, and you get it in seconds. That should be the way of the world. There shouldn't be too many layers between that. It's the year of the internet. We, we live in it now. So I'm very passionate about this and changing this within my lifetime. And I think the role after Boston can really play is bringing together the set of folks that are very passionate about this, builders, right? And we build this at scale. A lot of people love watching Black Panther the movie. And I'm like, Wakanda doesn't just have to be a movie. It can be a reality, right? Like it can be something that we actually achieve within our lifetime. Fantastic. And yeah, it's so yeah. true. I mean, passport are the, probably the most, the biggest force for unequal access to opportunity, right? Just yeah. the fact that you have that brand of like that country in your passport restricts you mm -hmm. from moving all around the world, opening bank accounts, opening businesses. So that's just, I think, one of the biggest tragedies, right? It really doesn't depend on your yeah. level of skill or ability. When you try to emigrate to other countries like the United States, it's just such a pain, mm -hmm. right? And Perfect. you have to go through Perfect. all this madness. Such a pain. You've been through that, right? Or your parents? 
No, yeah, like my fact that I think I'm one of the privileged few, right? And I think mm -hmm. what ends up happening, Nicholas, is someone like me gets out and maybe it's able to get to the other side. And then you're like, wow, this is actually messed up because what ends up happening is there's a hierarchy of means, right? And then the Nigerian who's trying to flee from Nigeria is thinking Nigeria is his biggest hurdle, right? And he maybe gets away from Nigeria and he's like, okay, cool. I've fled that hurdle. And then now I'm trying to climb the chain in the West or whatever. And then he reaches another ceiling. And then by the time he becomes really enlightened, he realizes, oh, the entire game is rigged against us. I hear, no, I'm not going to spend my life playing that game. I got to play a game that's most sustainable for me and my people. And I think for me, it was, look, as an African, I can't. And I saw this happen in the Silicon Valley area too, where you would have folks who were working at Google and Facebook and Uber or whatever. And then they would see their colleagues be like, hey, I've worked here enough. I've earned some good money. I'm going to go back to Kazakhstan or go back to China or go back to India to go build a startup. And maybe in a couple of years, that startup could have an exit. But for many of those people who are Africans in those com companies, they're like, wait, I left my country to flee poverty to come here. In my hierarchy of needs, I'm supposed to already be a success. But I'm over here and there are people who are here and they don't view this thing I consider a success to be success. And they're leaving to go back to their home countries to build. But I might not be able to go back to Nigeria to build because of the corruption, the insecurity, the terrorism acts, or the whole it's deck is stacked against you. Plus, the ease of doing business is basically trash. So then you say to yourself, okay, I have to be really crazy to leave my cushy job at Google to go back to build for Nigeria, right? And so what we're offering to them is saying, hey, you don't actually even need to move back. You can still build, but build the virtual country. Build for a place where you know it will be appreciated, where people will actually value your effort. And then you can build this at scale where it's not only limited to your geographical location. This is something you can tap into as you move across the world, right? And that's what we're offering. Yeah. You are in Lagos, Nigeria right now, right? What's your, how do you feel now that you're being back and you're bringing these ideas and how to, how do people react to these ideas that haven't yet left the country and seen or what you've seen and have the experience that you have? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's been a journey because I remember um, last year we actually started fleshing out the idea in Lagos, Nigeria. And initially the, most people were like, yo, this craziest idea I've ever heard. But most of them feds come around and like, this could actually work. This could actually work. And I think the MVPs for it, because you have to show concepts. But you think about the fact that the network stays a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action. We showed that with our clubhouse, right? You thought that is literally just evidence of people coming together online and making, and making actions. Cool. And then that's able to crowdfund territory around the world. Proof of concept for that is the 1 million people that we were able to facilitate that came to Ghana in 2019. So you're now basically saying the next step, able to crowdfund territory around the world and eventually gain diplomatic recognition from big states. Are you able to get a highly aligned online community? If yes, let's move on to the next thing. Are you are they able to have a capacity for collective action? If yes, let's move on. Are you able to crowdfund territory around the world? If yes, let's move on. The last phase is gain diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. And the way that process works is you start with one country that gives you recognition and you start ladding up those recognitions as you go, right? And so for us, it's like, these are not insurmountable tasks, but the first challenge is just making sure people's mindset 
they learn this new framework of thinking about the world, right? Because I think for me, what my frustration was when I was pacing around the room for about an hour was, why do we have to accept this as our reality? Why should this reality be something we actually accept? Why can't I move around freely? Why can't I send money freely? Why can't I get access to job information or tools freely? Who made these rules? And why are we accepting them? Why are we not changing them or figuring out a way to stop them, right? And so this doesn't require anyone to march. This doesn't require anyone to protest. This doesn't require anyone to go to war. This only requires you opting out to opt into this digital space. And that's what we're building. And this is borderless as well. Yeah. I'm wondering, because it's kind of my experience, and I haven't been thinking about the world exactly like I do now before mm -hmm. sort of doing this podcast, mm -hmm. talking to people like you or Tom W. Bell mm -hmm. or reading Balaji's book. But once you do, or since I've been in Prospera, but once you do, it just becomes obvious. You kind of see a nation or a country or a community like that and the rules of society almost as this layer, the software, and you see the lines of code yeah. that are written. Sometimes they're hundreds of years mm -hmm. old. What's, when I talk to people about it, It, it just, it's just very hard to find nuggets or the pieces of information mm -hmm. that makes them see that or make it resonate. Like it's almost like you're talking a foreign language sometimes. But then again, maybe that's in places yeah. like where I'm from, like in Germany or in the United States, where I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time where people are to start thinking about these issues a lot. So I'm wondering, can you compare how that's different in a place like Nigeria, where sort of these governance failures might be more obvious to people? Yeah, I mean, they're very obvious. Like the average Nigerian doesn't even know what good mm -hmm. governance looks like. We've never experienced it within our lifetime. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I've never seen it. I had to move to the West to know what to even expect of governance. I'll tell you this story. I remember during COVID or something, I wasn't able to work because of the pandemic, right? I remember going for so long and not knowing that I could qualify for unemployment insurance. I didn't even understand that was a thing. And somebody was saying to me, like, this, this is stuff that you're paying to from your paycheck and then this is what you can get. And I'm like, wait, what? Like the government actually honors that? They actually pay you back the money? Like, they're like, yeah, this is a whole process. I had never seen anything like that in my life. So we don't even have a model or sort of what to expect from governments because how we move around in this country is we're a government unto ourselves. We provide our own water, provide our own electricity, provide, there's everything you have to do it yourself. There's no, if there's a fire, there's no one calling the fire service. If there is a problem, no one's really calling the police. Everyone figures it out for themselves. And I think for us, it's you first have to show people that this is possible to expect, right? And it starts by offering them services that are quality. Like when they tap into you, they're like, you know what? Similar to Amazon in the US, right? I've come to trust Amazon with so much because they were trustworthy with so little. From the moment I've become an Amazon Prime member, I've seen the quality of the services that they offer. If Amazon tomorrow said, you know what, we could do better than the U.S. government, I would be the first to vote. Like I would be because they've already shown me the capacity to deliver on services. Whereas when I go to the government-backed services, they're usually not of the same quality. And I think to myself, you have to first set the expectations for people to aspire. To. And this is why it requires on learning to relearn. And I think for us, our messaging has to first get awareness out there Start delivering on certain services for people, let people be able to get things like job opportunities, get things like funding through the network or get things like just access to information. And then they start to see the other things accrue over time. Fantastic. Actually, you're such, on such an epic and fantastic mission. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot that you need to build this. 
So for the yes. ones in the audience that are thinking, Ishe, how can I help you? What can they do to yeah. help you and support you on your mission? What are you looking for right now the most? Honestly, I would say we're looking to attract builders. We need more builders. Like they, you can't ever have too many. So I would say if you can visit apropolitan.io, please apply to be a member and then mint the citizen pass because you could still, I think we have about 90 spots left in the citizen passes. And honestly, we're moving the community, the founding citizens to Geneva, which is a community app, and we will start unlocking a lot of this value at scale. So, yes. Fantastic. Anything else you want to shout out to the audience, give them on the way something that they can read about you or your work or where to reach you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Echecrates. So it's E-C-H-E-C-R-A-T-E-S. We also have two community events coming up. We have one this Friday in Nairobi, Friday, January 27th, available on our website. We also have a networking mixer next week, Wednesday for founders in Lagos, also available on our website. But also really try and attend enough positive event in your city. We're going to be unlocking a lot of those events in different cities across the world. But to learn more, just visit our website, apropolitan.io. Fantastic. And just to remind everyone, just I like the, because it's so succinct, Afropolitan is creating a digital nation to enable all Africans to build abundant lives. I just love the sort of abundance of it and the big vision and mission behind yeah. it. So thanks so much, Echel, for coming on the show and sharing this vision with my audience. Many of us, including myself, will and want to support yeah. you. I'm an Afropolitan citizen number 93, by the way. And I'm very awesome. proud of holding, holding the NFT in my wallet. So for anyone in the audience, please join us on that mission. Join Escher and join Afropolit on that mission. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Liquid. I am deeply grateful. Time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got-